If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I know it's been longer than you maybe anticipated. It's probably longer than we anticipated, to be honest, but everything has to happen in its due course when it is right. And, and we're back right here, right now for the first episode of Series 2 of Stoke the Fire. As always, nothing's changed. Our, our names remain the same. Maybe there's been a few tweaks and like developments since we last spoke. Well, there's been many, actually, which I'm sure we'll get into throughout, you know, not just this episode, but the ones that follow. But here we are. Episode one of series two, Matt Stocks, Jesse Leach. Jesse, it's great to see your face in this format on the Zoom once again. I know it's great, too, for anyone who follows us on social media. We actually were able to hang in person and we had our live event. And a lot has happened since then, but this feels right. Getting back into this little groove that we got uh, with guests and doing it the Zoom way, which will eventually hopefully move this. No, not hopefully. We will move this into an actual live room at some point with people. That's something we have on the back burner. But um, yeah, this just feels right, man. Nice to kick off season two. Well, yeah, we spoke about turning this into a travel show at the very start of the whole Stoke the Fire journey. And I think when I came out and spent time with you in Woodstock and, you know, we got to not just do the live show in New York with all of our previous guests and with Stigma and, and Melissa Cross. I want to say obviously a big thank you to, to everybody who came and was a part of that amazing event in New York in April. But then after that, as you alluded to there, I got to, you know, kind of kick it and spend some time with you in Woodstock and we went hiking and, you know, we sat around the fire and, and my brain was just ticking the whole time I was there. I was like, this needs to be the format of the show. But we're aware that we've been away a while and I feel like we can't just disappear and then somehow expect to to have a real life travel show just from out of nowhere. So we're back with the Zoom thing for a while and we hope as the show, you know, begins to evolve and develop that we can perhaps raise a little bit of financing, get a little crew together and get out there and start, you know, exploring that side of the show that has always been on the cards. Um, but we're we're still here in the Zoom format for now and we also figured to launch this show with a new season, the guest had to be right. Um, and we're not about, you know, just trying to pull the biggest name we can find to try and make a big splash and say, oh my God, here we are with Ozzy Osbourne or whoever it is. Although Ozzy, I don't think would quite <laughs> match or fit the Stoke the Fire style. But for us, it's about the depth of the conversation. And yeah. this guy who is our first guest, um, he's got the story. The journey is incredible and inspirational. We're going to get into it, I'm sure, in as much detail as time will permit. But also, I think it's cool that if anybody understands the hustle of being an independent 
creative because that is obviously very much the nature of this podcast now is we relaunched off gas digital on our own you know independent platform so it's just me and jesse and our our amazing producers joey and annie so from here going forward it's very much about us and you and you helping us grow this thing as a very independent endeavor um and this guy who's joining us today is our first guest jesse i wonder if you could shed a bit of background context on his career because he's signed to previous guest and dear old friend of yours sage francis's label right which is a nice little bit of a thread between series one and two as well and he's good friends with with randy bligh who is also obviously an early guest on stoke the fire so the the connections run deep yeah it's funny because you know you mentioned not mentioning names but you kind of have to mention names like randy from lamb of god um posted up about him and I was like, oh, interesting. This dude looks interesting. He looks hardcore. What, what is this? This, you know, this dude with long dreads doing hardcore, like, cool. But little did I know, he's a rapper. And the rap was the hip-hop, I should say, because he's not just a rapper. He's, he embodies what hip-hop is. Um, his record is incredible. I loved what I was hearing, the, the storytelling, the intelligence, and the way he carries himself. And then he puts out a hardcore record, and he's easily going from one genre to the next. It's just about his voice. It's about his attitude, the way he approaches life. And obviously having Sage Francis in your your uh, corner and then Randy from Lamb of God in your corner, to me, was just like, wow, this dude is just, who is this guy? And uh, the, the record, the hip-hop record speaks for itself. I think it really tells his story. And that's why I wanted to even get him on, just listening to his lyrics and his attitude. He's got a very punk rock diy or if people don't know a real hip-hop um mindset to him about building community staying positive but i'll let him talk more about that my man black lick stoked to have him on the show come on in brother Dunna. there he is yes yes hello how you doing brother i'm making it like yeah it's coffee on deck time it's been a long ride here, man, but I'm excited. There you go. Yes, your cup's cooler than mine. Mine came for free off some corporate stuff, so I was like, why not? <laughs> but it works. It's big. It's it, That's the whole point. It's a big cup. But, yo, I, I really um, – I'm excited, and, and I appreciate, like, the, just hearing that even. Like, uh, we, we can get it all the way into all those stories, but I, I truly do appreciate just even the sentiment and, and the thought. And, you know, it's – been one of those things man where you you put you put stuff into the universe and you you don't think about like i try not to think about how i'm perceived because i just want people to think more than to just be like oh i made you think i'm this way or that way so for you to to have such an honest and enduring perspective of who i am and who you perceive me to be off of what you saw of me is from the very get-go and if you've explored what i'm about what i do that means a lot so i really appreciate it it's a privilege to be on here and, and to, to be numero uno on a, on a season dose, and I don't even speak Spanish. That right there <laughs> did it well, though. The man. big moment. Why? Thank you. Thank you. I think for me, what what intrigued me about you is the way you're presenting yourself. It seems very authentic. It doesn't seem like anything you've done to this point is a front or a fake. And I love that because there's so many performers and artists that kind of have a shtick. And to me, it just didn't seem that like there was any of that. So it made me intrigued to go deeper, and not just with your music, but who you are as a person, where you come from, what your story is about and how you got to where you are now. So that's kind of why I wanted you to come on. And that's what we're interested in doing is kind of getting to the essence of you 
where you started and bringing it full circle to where you are now. Right on, right on. I can get, I'll give it to you straight up, believe me. I got plenty of stories. <laughs> I got so many stories. Well, let's take it right back to the start then, man, like we like to do. So where were you born and raised? And tell us a little bit about the, you know, the geographical area which you grew up in and then also the familial environment and right on. perhaps how you got on uh, you know, as a kid in your social circles and at school and the educational system, all of that stuff that forms your young mind set the scene for us, if you would. Right on. And it, it's it's perfect time to talk about this because this is uh, what I've been writing about lately. So uh, basically, the way, way it works like this. So I was born in California, Loma Linda, right? And uh, I don't really remember much of that, but I remember a little bit of it. My father, uh, ex-Army telecommunications installer, my mom, woman on the run or something. And, uh, you know, I had an older brother and, you know, we lived in California and my father was a telecommunications installer that meant following the work across the country. And so as life would have it, we stopped, we hopped in the car and we started driving around the country, so to speak, from place to place. So that meant that I didn't really necessarily, my brother being five years older than me, he was more so in school than I was at the get go of it. But we rolled around from place to place. And at first, my parents did like really try to create some sort of sense of normalcy, despite the fact that, you know, like we're all in a car and we're living in hotels. And I ain't talking like Holiday Inn, I'm talking more like Econo Lodge, random joints. And uh, I had, you know, to keep it in broad strokes, yet also very specific sorts of broad strokes. I have a lot of memories that are kind of just like when you, you know, you tour or whatever you do, you go to hotels, they all seem the same, but there's all little different th- sorts of things that kind of fall within the same category. So, you know, I grew up around a lot of like hood stuff, a lot of like, a lot of quick friendships, a lot of like here, you know, we're, we're, in, we're enrolled in a school for two weeks and then, uh oh, now we got to go further towards the East coast, you know, for more work. And, um, uh, you know, we went all the way across the country, which is kind of strange to think about now. But I stayed in a lot of different hotels. And by the time we finally, we went to Florida for a while. I lived in, uh, in Daytona Beach. I also lived in Jacksonville at one point. In Daytona Beach, we lived in an apartment for a bit, but things got repoed there. And um, I'll never forget, like, this is how my childhood was. Like, number one, Pops, big drinker, you know, at the same time, that's where I get my work ethic from, because no matter what, this man would drink all night, get up next morning, go right back out there to work. My mom worked retail, did a stay at home kind of thing often, too. There were lots of kitty thugs and pets that we kind of adopted as the road went. And um, by the time we are in Florida, I finally I was at a point and I'll never forget in Daytona, man. There was a kid in my uh, my class. I was in. And out of school so much, they kind of thought I had like a learning disability or something. So I would get put in kind of intermediate classes, like in-betweeners, like K-1, for instance. It's not kindergarten. It's not first grade. It's right in the middle. And um, there was this kid named John and or Jonathan. And I finally, his parents finally were like, you guys can hang out. And when we could finally hang out, homeboy, uh, homeboy, you know, it was like, I can come over. And I was like, actually, now you can't because we're moving and we just got our TV repossessed. So there's no video games either. So like things like that would happen in my childhood. Also, you know, growing up, you're a mixed kid in, in America with the great grand divide beyond the base of Dixon, more psychologically, you come across kids who try to size you up as a new kid. They ask you, are you black? Are you white? I learned a lot about racial identity politics and how people who want to be inclusive actually become exclusive 
and they push people away. So I learned a lot about that as a kid. My mom always tried to get me to always focus on um, on, on making people feel included because I never really fit any kind of standard mold because I didn't have any standard experiences. The only consistent elements in my childhood were my parents, alcoholism, hotels, and, and different kinds of hood scenarios, Van Damme, which I'm wearing today, Steven Seagal, and uh, <laughs> lots of action movies because every hotel had HBO, uh, more video games, fast food, homeschool stuff, cats, arguments, and uh, the interstate. And so it was, it was, it never really felt like we were constantly on the move because we always were. And it uh, became apparent, you know, that we were kind of burnt out on going to the school. Like for my brother, it was much harder. But for me, like I would go into the school and I'd dissect the psychological and social dynamics of the classroom. And I would quickly like get student of the year in, or whatever in like a few weeks. And people would be mad and it would be dumb because I'd be like, this, this just means nothing. And, you know, for me, it always kind of felt like a trick. Like, are y'all trying to say that I'm like good to make me feel comfortable because maybe you know something about my background? I don't know. It never really mattered because I, I was like, I'll be gone in a week anyways. And sure enough, I'd be gone in a week again. Eventually, though, we did end up in Richmond, Virginia. We put up a big protest with my parents in, um, in Jacksonville. Like, we're not we're not going back to a school until y'all figure this out. And, we, and they, we stood our ground, man. And we had takeyati Chinese food, sweet and sour chicken. But we ended up in Richmond, Virginia eventually. And uh, by then, I was like in third. And uh, my biggest fear was cursive. and I was like, yo, the, the, the writing cursive, what do I do about that? Turned out it wasn't a problem. That's what I, on the uh, I'm Not Right song on my album, um, Thomas Price, the, the, the whole little story about me writing the, uh, the essay saying that I, that I was better than the kids, that was when that happened. And my dad, like, I, my dad was always a big champion of self because he came from Harlem. And to, like, for me, this is kind of where my life begins in my mind. I've been in Richmond, Virginia since. And, uh, for me, this is where things start to kind of come together. Like, who are my parents? Who am I? How do I establish myself now that I got a, a kind of an identity? It turned out, you know, my father, he, he's from Harlem. And he, uh, his, his dad killed his mom in front of him and then was incarcerated. So when that happened, he was raised by, I, I'm guessing, a grandma, something like that. And, you know, new name and everything, though. So who knows what my real name is? But uh, ironically, today is my Facebook birthday. It's not even my real name, real birthday. I love when people are like, hey, John. But that's another thing. But like, so my dad, he came from that and he pulled himself up all the way. And, you know, he's a successful telecommunications star at this point. He's making good money, though, you know, we don't see with so much of it. But he's doing um, a lot of great work. And uh, he was he was big in championing yourself and believing in yourself. So it wasn't when I wrote that, that like essay that I was like being disrespectful. I was saying like, I'm here and ain't nobody going to pull me down because your values are nothing compared to the values and things I've already endured. And these kids out here being kids and I haven't been a kid for a long time. So I uh, grew up in that. And, and from there, man, like things just kind of like my brother, He's been an emotional guy always. I was never really emotional about any of it, especially like around fifth grade. And this is another pivotal point in my life. It was like fifth, fifth or fourth. I think it was fifth grade. We uh, on Christmas Eve, we were being jerks, and my pops gave me a beat down. Well, gave me and my brother a whipping with the belt, and to me, that's entertaining. 
my brother, he cries. And from that point, that's where I discovered that my parents were people. And my brother, he was living under this umbrella of fear of like this perceived ceiling that existed above us. And I was like, you know, we're living in a hotel room. By this point, we were in room 340. We can get deep in the hotels. We're living in a red carpet in here in the West in Richmond and in Rico, technically by a Willon Mall. This place is like a crack hotel. You got prostitutes, you got crackheads, you can smell crack through the vent. There was a knife fight with the blind cokeheads who lived next door to us. They were blind, but they were doing cocaine and um, they loved it. And to the other side, we had Louie. He was an uh, ex-Vietnam vet who made spicy pasta in his crock pot and had a thing for prostitutes. We had Fred and Shirley who lived next door also. Like one, because we had Fred and Shirley, then we had the cokehead and the blind people. Fred and Shirley, they were uh, they had a kid named uh, Little Freddie who I almost choked and killed when I was a kid. I choked him until he turned purple. And uh, I'll tell you that story. But, you know, we had all these interesting people that we got to meet. And it was because of this environment. I'm growing up in a really risky environment. People were trying to sell food stamps and stuff. Like one night a prostitute got beat up and um, got like basically tried to escape. And, and the windows were all glass in the front of the hotel room. She broke the glass and they, uh, they beat her up and dragged her from the third floor down all the stairs and stuff or whatever. So like there was this big blood trail. And so instead of cleaning up, the, ho- the hotel just got red carpet. Like, that's how I came up, you know? And I loved it. I loved being in that place. So that place kind of informed the next chapter of my identity between those sorts of strange traumatic hood elements and also the still my pops with his work ethic. My my mom just kind of trying to work jobs every now and then and hang on. And my pops, like, getting drunk as hell off some Hennessy and passing on the balcony and waking up, putting boots on while we're watching Power Rangers, like, and going to work. And he comes back late at night busted his ass all day and now here we are you know and so my brother at the same time you know he went through middle school and stuff like that kind of and uh he he was trying to find it you know more of his his identity and that's where hip-hop came into my life is when he was in eighth grade my brother's name is jimmy and when he was in eighth grade he became james and james loved wu-tang and uh for me hip-hop cost my brother because my brother was super cool he was all i had and then he got into hip-hop and suddenly i wasn't cool anymore and you know i've been kicked off basketball courts and stuff to this day that's i'm like six four and i don't know how to play basketball like my pops you know always laughed about that but my brother he um he always was like he was the cool guy he he always strove for social acceptance and wu-tang you know, Method Man, stuff like that. That really was my first introduction to it. But I respected it at the same time. And I didn't get into hip hop till much later, like till like high school. I was always into video games, into like journalism. I wanted to be, my first thing that I ever wanted to be was a a video game programmer because I love video games. Video games were like my best friend through the whole experience. I hung out with all the Vietnamese kids and, um, we played Street Fighter, and I used to always crush, man. I was unstoppable. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, the little side story, too, the listen how real the video game situation was and, like, the kind of house I grew up in and how much care I have because this kind of sounds like my parents are failing in some ways. We had situations, like, where, like, a Mortal Kombat would come out on Sega Genesis, right? And it's like, yo, I want the Mortal Kombat. We ain't got no money for Mortal Kombat. What we do have is membership to the video game, I mean, the video rental store. So what we'll do is we'll go and rent the video game and we'll just keep that joint until we had the money to buy the joint. And I remember I was at the hotel and the kid was like, man, I want to rent Mortal Kombat, but some guys had it checked out since the day it came out. And I was like, that's me. And I was like, you ain't gonna do nothing about that, bro. 
I had six button controls before I owned the game, man. And um, because otherwise you had to hit start button and switch between kicks and punches. It's the whole thing. Never would work. You can't do a combo <laughs> like that. The mode button. So um, you know, like I had stuff like that when it came to the you know, we lived, we moved out of the hotel. I was in an apartment at one point and um in a, in a place called Harbor Village, and I met some friends there and stuff like that. And of course, you know, video games is still a consistent element. Like my mom, man, she would do whatever it took to go ahead and provide for a brother, man. Like for my, my one birthday where I wanted a Super Nintendo, she went to software, et cetera, and bounced a check for that joint. Like straight up. Just like, yo, I'm going to bounce a check for this joint. And um, I got to ask, I got to backpedal here because I'm curious on me. about the timeline. So before you get to Virginia, you're how old? So you're a, a little a little boy, like a baby boy up until yeah. what age? When did you like, when did the wheels slow down and Virginia became home? I, like, I don't know. I don't know how old I was in third grade. I, I'm not good with, with uh, dates. I can third, do it by video grade. game. That makes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can do it by what video game I was playing. I, um, but third grade was where I finally, like we landed in Virginia and um, we stayed and it was like, all right, this is where we're going to be. And, you know, by then I'd been all over the place, man, Ohio, Iowa, you know, weird places, man. And just in, in Florida, for me, I thought was going to be the place at first. But Florida, Florida wasn't it. We ended up driving up, man. And I, and I love Florida, you know, Volusia County and stuff like that, man. I really did dig it. We used to skateboard and all that. So, like, it was cool. But it, we ended up here, man. And so, like, in growing from that whole compartmentalized identity. I'm getting so many Facebook notifications right now about my fake birthday. It's, it's, it's the worst. <laughs> I just got to know, happy birthday, my G. Like, yo, all right. You know, this is why my joint ain't a public day. But um, it, it was just really, really interesting for me because I had to make a choice. And to give you yet another, like, small tidbit, this stuff is just coming back to me, man. It's weird. So like when I got to the elementary school and I knew Crestview Elementary and I knew I was going to be there for a while, I started like analyzing the circle, like looking who's who's who, who's the cool kids, you know, who are the ones that aren't cool, who's being put out. That's how I ended up kicking it with the Vietnamese kids. So I was like, nobody gets these guys. Some of them don't even speak English. It's my people. And um, I, they, some of the, I still have a lifelong friend out that side for men and some of the greatest people. But the first thing that I did was I wore a coat. The whole year, whole year, coat, blue coat, man. It was one of them joints you could reverse it. Later on, I found out it was a girl's coat. My mom played me. But still, I own that, yo, because I rocked that coat. And I did it. It was kind of like my whole version. Like when you go to prison, they say you got to slap somebody as soon as you get in there. It's kind of my way of saying like already I'm giving you something that you're going to try to assail and you can't mess with me. I never had a chip on my shoulder, but I was always like, yo, I know. I know you, you ain't coming at this. So like I wore this blue coat for a whole year, man. And uh, just to prove it. Do you think that's a byproduct of all the traveling you did and having to like pick up and move on and figure people out? Because, you know, I traveled a lot as a kid, too. And you do have to analyze. I remember going in and like, who's the toughest kid? Like trying to figure out where you stood and who who's who. Do you think you wearing the coat was kind of part of that? Like that mindset that you had where you just constantly adapted? It was scientific method. Like I uh, created a control in order to create a variable. Wow. Okay. And, and uh, the people, the behavior components and mechanisms were going to be the variables and I was going to be the control. I create something for you to react to 
And then I can figure out how accepting you are of people, how quick you are to cop out in social scenarios when there's pressure. I can figure out who's the popular person. And then when I become cool with the popular person and the person doesn't fit the dynamic, I have the ability to transition between your social circle and the other ones. So I'm never caught. I, wow. I can create multiple Venn diagrams socially. And um, we all have something in common, which to me has always just been that we're all different. And I used to do that. And that's kind of how I never, I never got like bullied or anything, despite being, when I was a kid, I was a fat kid. I was a nerdy kid. I hung out with the unpopular kids. The girls didn't like me, all that. And I never, uh, I never had any, any bullying problems. Cause I think people knew like, yo, this, this dude's a little different, but also like he speaks the language he's familiar. And, uh, you know, I want to pick up on what you just said there about the one commonality that we all share is that we're all different. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could shed some more light on that. I love that because I do think in today's world of kind of labels, everybody's trying to like, you know, put a kind of collective identity, um, you know, on certain groups of people that does take away from our individuality. And I Absolutely. think it's our individualities and our eccentricities and characteristics that make us special and unique that, you know, we need to hold on to that stuff. Right. Yeah, most definitely. My uh, my my take on things was that uh, it, it always annoyed me when people would show up and they would discount their individual to become a people instead of a person, because I found that persons were awesome. Like anybody, even the biggest jerk, right, would be mad cool if you got them by themselves. But then you put them with their people. And all of a sudden that person vanishes. And I was like, I don't change. So like, this doesn't make sense to me. And I used to hate that. But then I also recognized when I was sitting on the swing set in K1 and this kid stepped to me with this white girl next to me. He was like, is you black or is you white? And then the girl was like, am I talking to your black side or your white side right now? And I was like, I can't imagine what's going on at your house because these, these politics, you're, you're, you're totally missing the point of who you are. And it, also, the other thing is that when you buy into these like these these labels, these notions, you immediately decide to throw away the most important parts of who you are in order to, to feel like you're safe or getting ahead. I never needed that. And I, I, I still don't. And that um, that it, that's one of the techniques that I've always used to create you know, situations to sound like I'm on a nonprofit called Equitable Environments, where inclusivity is like, yo, I, I want everybody to know they got a seat. And uh, we don't even need the table. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're if you're an outsider, man. You can't be an outside without an inside. It's it's all related. Mm. So I used to always be the dude in the middle who bring those things together. And you know, I'd be the bridge, but you ain't gonna walk on me. You ain't gonna walk all over me. You know what I mean, it's like pimp juice. If I'm the rug, you ain't putting your foot on this. <laughs> so like. You know what I mean? So like I, I used to do that all the time. And I, and I always believe that. And plus, you know, advocacy from people who are typically like the, the nerdy kids got the good grades. You need to help figure out the lesson plan. You got that advocacy. The other dudes, you need to know something that's going on socially. They can get you in there. Who's got the candy? I'm cool with the cool kids. I'm going to get the candy, bro. And then I'm going to share with my people. I'm going to break off the nerds as well. I ain't going to hold it over their head. I'm going to bring them up. And that's kind of like how I did it. So you must have in your heart a deep rooted love of all people, despite you know, humanity's flaws. It seems like from chatting to you, just if I'm not reading too much into it, you care about the human race enough to want everybody to have a good life. I, 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 uh, I don't know. Like, 
I care. I care because I don't care. I do like I care. Like, you know, the whole idea is, is that I don't care what you choose to do, who you choose to be. I just care that you see that you can choose to be who you are and also that you chose to be who you are. And just because you chose to be who you were doesn't mean that's necessarily who you are if you choose to be who you've actually been. And so I believe more so in uh, becoming is being and being is becoming. And that cycle and, and that disposition of people universally, for me, allows me to remove what would be a pitfall that would lead to judgment and instead allows me to operate with acceptance. I don't, I don't have a, there's this characteristics of people that I could resent. There's things that I could um, constantly, like I hate, I could deconstruct the ideas of what I think people are and how I'm supposed to feel about them. But I honestly don't think that's going to be a very productive thing for me to do. So I've, I, I don't, I don't have time to, I don't have enough space. I got a big heart apparently, but I don't have space to, to have, useless hate in it like when am i going to weaponize my emotional intelligence towards some other person that i truly don't even know and also to operate off of it, an affirmed opinion to uphold that within your truth to the point where it hardens to become a fact when you don't even know a person truly is to embrace ignorance as your compass and i'm i'm only going to follow ignorance for learning not for assumption so that in itself, I'm still not going to say that I know. That in itself is something that keeps me from falling into whatever inner internal evil voice in my mind might be like, yo, I hate that person. I wish he'd die. Mm-hmm. I, I, when I hear that, I think, well, it, the only way he can die is if he lives. So why not, let's let him have a fulfilling life before he, he gets that. Wow, that's, that's profound. Yet at the core of what you're saying, it's pretty simple. Um, you know, hatred takes a lot of effort and it's it's a waste of time. And I love that you said that. Now, I want to circle back to this because I think it kind of falls in line um, with with hip hop. I think hip hop as a culture, not just a musical form, because a lot of people don't know, like, you know, the people who know hip hop is a culture. So you first heard hip hop with Wu-Tang and your brother and eventually got there. But to me, what you're doing now, the way you're speaking with knowledge and wisdom, to me, that plays a role in hip hop and why I gravitated towards hip hop when I was young was a lot about the state of mind, about upliftment and about seeking knowledge and wisdom. Do you find that when you started to get into hip hop, did you see that initially or are you just like, oh, the beats are like what drew you into hip hop that sort of helped shape you as a rapper and and who you are today and, and even just the way you're speaking now with wisdom. I think it, it all ties in somehow because I know it does for me. Can you speak on that? And that's, that's exactly where I was going, man. I appreciate that because that's, that does, you know, I was explaining it clearly the whole thing, the way that it changed for me, like hip hop, Wu-Tang, you know, I, when I first started to even see it from, you know, just a, a, a bystander's view, there was the huge, the huge championship of uh, nods itself. And, you know, I loved Easy E, I loved Ice-T, stuff like that. But, like, every artist who I've gravitated towards uh, has leadership um, characteristics based off of champion of self through knowledge of self, not through ego. And, like, I'm the toughest. Like, yeah, you know, people on height don't fight, stuff like that. Like, Easy, like, yeah, there was that gangster ethos and stuff. But it was always, like, I'm going up against Goliath over here. You know what I mean? The system, the government, you know, other people in my hood who think they got something bigger than me. And um, hip hop became 
storytelling for me and a roadmap of the self. It became autobiographical. And I can learn about my heroes and, and while they sounded like superheroes. And that was like the, the earth shattering thing. But also the thing that's the reason why I believe I'm successful in life now is because of the fact that eventually I accepted that a person is a, is a person. And these rappers who are superheroes are actually people. And if they're my peers, then I'm also a superhero. And I realized that by creating environments that were based off of, off of rhyming, like the cypher, the freestyle session became my way of, um, because like people around me used to rap and I was like, yo, you can actually like do this. Like you can rap. Like I don't even have to be some dude on a piece of plastic and on a television screen, like we can rap and we don't have to be great at it. It's just about like, yo, and when you rap, it doesn't matter who doesn't like you. Everybody shuts up. And everybody is like the, the social scenarios that I try to create, like back in the day when so-and-so was getting, you know, ostracized and I was able to bring them in and there was equality. I saw that in hip hop. So hip hop became something that was not only a universal conversational medium that, oh, did you hear such and such? Did you get into this? It became something where I could create those environments where everybody was a star, where everybody had their time. And afterwards, there was a camaraderie that you couldn't get anywhere because I wasn't into sports. So it's like, this is our sport. This is our team thing. And um, I used to just go from cypher to cypher. And yeah, I'd be getting it. But just because I can, I can rhyme big words together and the small ones in between and stuff doesn't mean that you're, you're not as good as me or not as great as you because I can never rhyme like you, which is affirmed by the fact that you can never rhyme like me. But together, we can have completion. Because I'm taking in like a circle within a square, you got empty space. A square within a circle, there's still empty space. It was still both representing 360 degrees. That's why the cipher's gonna go around, there's you no know, sides to it. We just won't get into it. And so I used to do all that. And that's how hip hop allowed me to really, I think it was the next step in my development as, as a man in this world. It went from, hey, let's play Street Fighter with the Vietnamese kids because nobody cares about them and they're actually really good at it. To um, I don't fit into any of the parties that I'm being invited to. And then to, oh, yo, you know what? Like, I'm never going to say I rhyme, but I'm going to find a dude who does rhyme. And then I'm going to get into that to the point to where then I, I started creating the ciphers myself. But, you know, as, as we can get into further on that, you know, what happens is, is that eventually the culture becomes just becomes a verb. And hip hop culture was inclusivity for me. It was, it was self-respect. It was mutual respect. It was uplifting, elevation. And then it, it just transitioned into intoxication. Like I'd show up and we all smoking, we all drinking. And I realized people were showing up. To, I was there to rhyme. I got beat CDs and all this, you know what I'm saying? Everybody's excited, but they, one by one, it's less dudes rhyming and more dudes smoking, snorting and passing out and everything, bro. And I was like, yo, what's the point? You know, like, what am I here for? And that's what made me decide to really like be like, all right, there's nothing else I can learn from these people. And they're not being receptive to the teachings through the experiences. So I have to I have to shatter another preconceived limit and show them that like you can do this, but you gotta sometimes do it alone. And that's the way that the punk rock DIY, like hip hop aspect of things came into place is like where I started out creating these inclusive environments. I had to go out on my own. And really start, you know, finding my producers, my people, some of my closest buddies. And I was like, it may not be the greatest, but it's us. And I'm going to go hard with this. And I'm going to show people so that if they got off the interstate and took that exit and got into their own social stuff, I'm going to create a, a, another on-ramp for them. 
and I'm going to bring them back in here so that we can start rediscovering ourselves. But now, because you see I'm the real thing, you'll, you'll recognize once again that we've all always been the real thing. And, you know, that's why my radio show was called Hip Hop for the Rest of Us or is called Hip Hop for the Rest of Us, because I wanted to create something where people felt, once again, excluded by like commercial radio and all that. You can't get on the radio. Well, guess what? I am the radio now. You can't get in the magazine. I'm writing for the magazine. I'm doing all these things that I can't get because people look at me. And back then, you know, I got glasses. I got a big beard. I got the same kind of hair, though, was, was way less organized. Somehow I, this fell into place better this time. But back then, you know, I looked crazy and I literally would work a retail shift and I cover my clothes that I worked in because I wanted you to see just like the blue coat. It didn't, I didn't need none of that stuff. I didn't need the Gucci joint. You didn't need the Gucci joint. You know, you didn't need to show up in the polo with the, with the shades and with the, with the, with the guns and, the, and all the drugs and the, and the lady and all that. You didn't need none of that because all that landed on that beat was you. And so I would constantly show up to these places and it was, uh, it was like the ultimate warrior in wrestling, man. I, I might show up late, but I was on time. And when I show up, you're going to feel me and it's going to be what it is, bro. And, and like, that's, that's what kind of informed or created this, this place that I, I, I went to and that I, I reside in both mentally and, and, you know, I guess artistically is that I decided from those stupid scenarios and from those situations where like hip hop made me feel like an outsider. I decided to use hip hop as a gateway to allow people to access themselves and their identity. And um, I was thinking about it last night. Like for me, you know, my, my students, I ended up teaching because I told a similar story about how hip hop is like your grandma. I mean, your grandma shows up, she embarrasses the hell out of you. I ain't got a grandma, but I seen grandmas. And like when they show up, you know what I mean? They embarrass whoever and you know, it's like, yo, I hate this. But at the same time, ain't nobody going to say nothing about your grandma. They're going to shut up and they respect that grandma. And it's the same way in a cipher. And nobody who's correct going to sit there and be like, yo, that was dumb. You suck, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be all about that mutual respect. We're going to give everybody their grandma a moment. And after that, it's going to be peace. And um, when I gave that speech to those kids and I had my man's um, show them this, his Fruity Loops and everything, they, the school, the savage starting point, sent me an email. I was like, hey, how would you feel about teaching? And I was like, you know, my, one of my models is I don't say no. I just say, let me know. And so I was like, word. And then, you know, they threw a check at me and everything. And I was like, I didn't expect to get paid to do this. And I ended up going and, um, and became a teacher. And I've been doing that since they let me in. It's been over like 10 years, I think now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my students have a final on Friday, but it's always, I mean, on, on Monday, but it's always been about, um, like proficiency. We can all learn. We can all learn the how to get better. We can all learn how to make two plus two equals four, equal four, and then be like, "Oh, well, two times two will get you there too." Instead, though, you know, I'm all about the fundamentals. Will always be rooted in your sense of individuality and your identity. As long as you learn how to to know who you are and know what what your inside is like, you can work on learning just several different mechanisms to allow you to to complicate and simplify the way in which you exemplify the characteristics of the culture and, your, and display your proficiency as a lyricist. And so I don't go into classes. I used to come in with exercises that I do because I could freestyle all day because I put myself through tests. I never went to my class necessarily expecting my students to do that. I was like, what can I teach them? I can teach them how to rhyme in words, or I can teach them how to put themselves into words. And so I started removing my exercises and I started just saying like, yo, I just want you to be who you are. And it was one of the greatest things in my life. And it also, and this has just hit me, it's quite reiterative of uh, what I've been doing my whole life. It's like, yo, let's remove the cool and let's just be who we are. 
And then let's execute this, whether it be high level or just standard or, or beneath that. Let's just focus on bringing ourselves to the table first before we figure out what else is going on. And that's what my, my students get to do, man. If you're excited about rhyming about horses, I'm excited about hearing it. And, and that's that's what I that's kind of how I treat everybody, man. If you're excited about, you know, whatever it is, then let's be excited about it, man. People are embarrassed to be excited about stuff these days. That makes sense to me. Let me ask you this, and I'm sure mm -hmm. Jesse's got a million questions as well. Because you lay just, it on me, yo. You're you're fueling the fire. Um, you're talking a lot about self empowerment and you know forging your own path in life and going out on your own. And so, how do you, or how would you suggest or advise people who struggle with that battle, self doubt, and loneliness, and you know, kind of like that existential dread that we feel sometimes, like we don't belong? What's your you know, methods of coping with those feelings so you can, you lift yourself up and be yourself in your truest form, despite whatever voices are outside or indeed inside. I got the simplest answer for you for once. It's <laughs> failing. Fail. That's it. I decided, what are my choices, right? I can either be like, yo, I want to be like DMX. I want to be, I want to be big like Method Man, right? You got these dudes who, who, who transcended human perception as a normal person, right? And it's like impossible. The only way you could ever really get up there is to have your own version of that. If you spend all your time chasing them, right, then you're going to fail anyways. So why not, why not just say, you know what? If I'm failing, I'm succeeding. Because it's not that my goal is to be a failure. It's that I'm going to be a successful failure. Because when I fail, I learn. Everybody's afraid to fail. Everybody's got this shame component, this shame mechanism. Everybody thinks that when they fail, it's over. Failing is just the beginning. When I played video games, I pressed start to continue. My mom used to always joke and say when I was a little kid, I used to always be like, start, start, continue, continue, continue. Because I always loved the fact that, yo, I died, I'm going to try again. I'm going to get better at it. So accepting failure and choosing, saying, hey, well, if I tried it and I failed at it, the only part that matters is that I tried it. You know, and the successful component is that I failed at it because now I can try it again. Now I can say I did that. And then once I did that, I can really figure out how to do that. And then once I do that, I'm doing that. And then once I'm doing that, I am that. Once I am that, I can do something with that. And then we can do this so that we can do that because we did that. Now we're doing this. And if we're failing constantly during this entire developmental cycle, that's great because if we're failing, we're growing. And to take it to a Gary Busey level, failing is finding and dividing, learning and needing growth. You know, like you're not going to be successful in anything in life besides failing. And guess what? Everybody can fail. We can all do it all day. I'm failing at something right now. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's fashion. Who knows? But at the same time, you know, it's, it's great because every single time that we open ourselves up to improvement, we open ourselves up to vulnerability. And if our vulnerabilities are what give us strength. So wow. yeah, fail, man, fail. I love that. And I love the, the cadence at which you speak. You can tell you, you're a rhymer and a wordsmith. Your breath control too. Uh, as a vocalist, I'm just like, you just keep going. It's amazing. I love it. <laughs> so I, gotta go, I gotta go back to this because there are certain points that just really struck me. The way you worded it really struck me. So one thing I just want to say first for our listeners who don't know, a cipher is a circle of people that exchange rhymes. Usually you go in an order, someone will have their time to say something and rhyme, and then you continue on. Everybody gets a turn, kind of like passing the conch, if you will. 
And mm-hmm. I witnessed that at a young age and, and became a part of it. And people may chuckle, but I used to freestyle alongside people like Sage Francis. And I found that so liberating. And it's what you said, too. And someone like Sage is another guy you can bring up where he defied the fashion of it. He defied the idea of what hip hop was to a lot of people. And when you strip it all away and you see somebody coming in their work clothes or somebody who doesn't look like their hip hop, you know, you could say the same thing about punk and about metal. You don't have to look the part because it's not about the look, really. It's about who you are as an individual and the culture. And when I saw that in hip hop and in the ciphers, that's that's empowering. It's super empowering when you realize you don't have to be, like you said, a method man or, you know, a DMX. You bring your own style to it. So when I was in these ciphers, you got dudes that were like praising Rastafari. You got dudes that are talking about, you know, cartoons and video games. You got dudes like Sage that would look at you or look at the room and rhyme off of what he was seeing as it was happening. And it just made me realize how diverse this is. And it wasn't just about the music. It was about individuality and people. And that is what I latched onto. And I lived in a house where, you know, you had actors, you had um, hip hop people, you had hardcore kids, punk rockers. But we're all kind of going towards the same thing of, of discovering who you are and your place in the world. And from the way you described all that, and now the fact that you're teaching it to a younger generation, that's what's up. That's really what it's all about, isn't it? It's about individuality and, and putting away the fear of not being accepted. And then once you do that and you figure out who you are, you get a confidence in yourself that you don't even care if you're accepted anymore. Then the unacceptance almost becomes a style unto its own. And that's, to me, the ultimate empowering part of it all is when you figure out who you are, you don't care anymore that people don't see you a certain way because you kind of created your own lane. And I think that's what you've done. You've created your own lane with your music and your individuality, and you don't care anymore. And now you're passing on that knowledge to a younger generation. And I can't even imagine the young minds you're affecting with that, that state of mind of like, you don't need to be a part of this thing that you perceive it to be. Create your own lane. That just blew yeah. my mind because you worded it so eloquently. I just had to backtrack on that and just, just give you props for that because that, that really blew my mind a little bit. Thank you, man. Thank you. Like, yeah, that, that's, that's exactly been the goal is uh, to turn exception into exceptional. And we all have that own inner alchemy. And we, um, we like, we, we always are at, a, at, the, at the cusp, man. We're always right there. And if we decide to jump instead of being pushed off of it, the outcome is the same, man. You know, if we get pushed off of it, we might as well say we jump because at the same time we're falling. And, and for me, falling is flying, man. Like they both feel the same. And, you know, you can say, oh, it, it, it's going up. Like, man, listen, if, if something's below you, then you're down is it's up. And if something's above you, you know, like things are going to fall into place. I believe in Tetris, man. And so, like, you know, it, it's it's been super important to me throughout all of this journey to always show people that, like, because everybody in hip hop's afraid they're going to fall off. And it's like, what is falling off? Falling off is uh, complacency, certainly. But most artists who we claim or we hear have fallen off are based, their falling off is based off of the expectation of others. That you gave me an album that I didn't want to hear. It's like, you know, the, High level is like Kanye West, 
from like late registration to Yeezus. Like I think Yeezus is the best Kanye album because he didn't, it wasn't, he didn't make that for you. You know what I'm saying? He made that because of you. It was a, it was, it was an aggressive reaction. It was something that was not comfortable to listen to. You know, it was something that like you, you know, you, you try to tell somebody how they're supposed to sound because you're so used to receiving some sort of thing. You tell a baseball player that, you know, he's supposed to play baseball. And he's like, maybe I just want to have a conversation for once, man. Like, maybe I don't want to always have to be seen through this lens. It's just somebody who does a thing. And, and the bigger picture of that is labels. You know, I, I, uh, I did a, um, a forum about the education of, of children and whatnot in the city. It was called A Child in the City. The private school put it on. And they had the uh, head of juvenile detention in. And he said that uh, during his presentation, which was started with, I don't have the answers. All I can do is present to you the odds. And he was like, at age 12, 11 to 12, we have our first time offender, typically. And the first time offender goes in and out of the system so many times. By the time that he, you know, he's 11 years old, he, he goes to a place, he gets cuffed up, he gets told he's a criminal, and then he has a psychological problem of both. He gets out, he goes back into a school system. At this point, he's already labeled himself as a criminal. And then a teacher calls him a bad kid. He gets bad grades, bad kids, he's a criminal. He must be a successful failure, which is a criminal, embraces criminology fairly, gets into trouble with the wrong crowd or whatever it is because he's already lonely. Then boom, if he gets with the wrong crowd, he gets back into the system, further indoctrinated because he's embraced and wears the label, not only with pride, but out of fear because he feels like there's nowhere else for him. His exception is no longer exceptional. He's instead accepted it as a pre prerequisite to his own disposition in life and his predisposition to constantly be aggressive and to be on the outside of everything, including the law which is an irrefutable force of nature at this point in our society. If you want to try to get ahead is you got to learn the law, not learn because of the law. Don't wait till they throw the book at you to read it. And so a kid goes through this whole cycle constantly to the point that by the time he's 15, he's an adult. The school system's failed him. He's got more love in the streets and more chances of love in the streets and a place that he can put all his hate that he's internalized to use at least. And now he's been discarded by society. And by the time he turns 18, he is now a fully profitable piece of, or component of the prison industrial complex. He's a recidivist after being a recidivist after being a recidivist. And he's stuck in a perpetual loop of self-destruction. And the only way for us to turn that around is to reach these young people and to let them know, instead of in that whole after school special, you know, don't do this kids. Instead, it's to show them what they can do despite the odds and what they can accomplish just by being themselves and hip hop. Hip hop gave me that. And so regardless of what goes on in my life, like that's why I constantly still do it. Like this weekend, I'm going to freestyle the SPCA event, you know, and I'm going to use hip hop with a word bank that's collected throughout the day to that's based off of like a series of questions. I'm going to, I don't know what the words are going to be, but it's going to kind of be like the Bob Dylan video, I guess, where he has the words or whatever. I'm a freestyle right there on the spot and all that, just to bring attention to hip hop as another way for us to appreciate the love of the animals and the nonprofit work that they're doing. It's celebrating 20 years of a no kill shelter. Like these sorts of things, like the other aspect of it that I really want to champion and, and put on to that is that hip hop allows an individual to be universal. 
Like before hip hop was the big accepted number one culture in the world, blah, 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 or, you know, form of music, you know, hip hop, the, when, you, when I was in school, whoever was the rapper, right, was the dude who sat in the back or didn't talk or blah, 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 despite the fact that he's an animated performer and, and all these other scenarios, he, he, he subdued those things and he contained those things. I think that hip hop allows us to be MCs 24 hours a day in our lives, you know, to constantly move the crowd. The only way you can move the crowd is to connect with the crowd. The only way you connect with the crowd is through authenticity. When you get on the stage, as you know, it's not about you saying the words perfect and, and hitting every, every note. It's about connecting with the people. They've already heard the perfect version of it. They want to see you and they want to be there with you. That's what a show is. And you can't do that with your ego in front of you. You can't. You can't do that with everything everybody said about you in front of you, with that massive wall of BS in front of you. You have to put that down and you got to sit there and you got to touch those people and you got to let them touch you so that y'all can feel each other. And if you feel each other, hopefully you'll feel for each other and develop some sort of compassion because compassion is one of the necessary components of learning, I believe. You can't understand where you're going if you can't understand where somebody's been if you're both on a similar journey, though an entirely different quest in this life. So I, I just feel like, you know, one of the, the main things that we, we can do is always try to empower others, man, through this culture and through this music. And, and regardless of what you're into, I got friends who rap, who are actors now, you know, I got people who changed up their entire disposition and a look. I don't judge them because they stopped doing one thing or another. I'm just like, yo, I'm proud of you for picking up another aspect of expression instead of limiting what's inside of you as just the, the, the typecast of your identity. Instead, you're further exploring your identity and you're accepting that, hey, I may have failed at being a rapper, but maybe I'm a great actor. You know, maybe I'll fail at that. And these two things, will, these two extroverted arts that come from introverted elements of myself will only help me become the, one of the most important things I can be, which is a better father or something. Because now you got a kid that's under your wing that you're going ahead. You have the life intelligence to say, yo, it's going to be hard. And what matters is not what happens. What matters is that you happen. So like, that's, that's, that's where I, where I live at, man. And, and I think that, um, I, I used to say to myself, yo, what am I ever, like, what am I going to write about today? And I was like, yo, as long as I write about my life, I'll never run out of things to talk about. So I'm living. I love it. I love what you said earlier about, uh, <clears throat> perception and, somebody who's like a byproduct of like, you know, being a young criminal and changing their minds. That's why I look at programs that take like, you know, inner city youth out to the mountains and to the wilderness and they see stars for the first time. And I actually have seen that firsthand. Um, a relative of mine uh, who was raised in, you know, a pretty crazy environment as a family and really never left New York City, um, brought her up here to see mountains and stars and fireflies and all that stuff for the first time. And I've seen a shift in this person's life. I've seen a shift. The light bulb went on of like, Oh, I don't have to continue living this particular way. There are other avenues for me to like, Oh, there's all this other stuff I never knew because I was never pulled out and shown it. I've always been stuck in this cyclical thing. And that to me, like is why people like you need to be teachers need to be in front of young people to give them that, that foreign thing that they never even knew existed. I mean, I can't even tell you what it was like to sit there driving by the mountains that I live around every day all the time and to see this young girl who's never seen any of that go, wow, is that a painting? Is that real? That's a mountain. It was like, it was sad and beautiful all at the same time. 
And I've seen a shift in that person's life, her life. I've seen a total shift. So I can't even imagine how you're affecting people and just the words that you use um, and the way you're saying it. The pa- You have a passion for this. It's incredible. It's infectious. It's actually affecting me right now because I'm in a little bit of a writer's block. So you're kind of blowing my mind. So again, you know, I don't really know where I'm going with this except for just to say kudos to you, man. I love what you're doing and what you're saying. There's so much wisdom in it. It's ridiculous. Oh, hey, look, thank you, man. I, I, I believe... I believe one of the most important things about wisdom is that because uh, like one of the things that always kill me is people like, yo, black man, yo, you're so deep, yo. And I'd be like, hold up, bro. It's like you are aware of the fact that you can drown in a puddle, right? You know, so it's like the truth of the matter is, is that wisdom is recognized by those wise. And the moment that you feel wisdom is the moment that you also at that point are at now, at whatever you thought to be above that ascension is taking place. That elevation, that's where you are. Because understanding is is key. You know, like when you have that understanding, you ain't really got to talk about it no more. You know what I'm saying? Like we can now take, just like I was saying with the doing to the to the did, to the you know, did doing this together, like we can build with that now. And and we have to keep building. I know so many people who think that uh because they're maintaining that they're moving forward. And it's like, you, you know, you're you're maintaining, sure, like maybe you're you're maintaining allows you to get whatever it is, you know, money or, you know, more successful stuff. You have formulas that allow you to go ahead and produce a certain desired result. and That entire outcome makes you feel successful. That's cool. But what are we doing about you? What are you doing for you? Because obviously that thing, you know, it's, it's creating a certain level of, yeah, we can constantly, we can duplicate this. We can assembly line it. But what about you? What are you building? Who are you really becoming? And, and when are you going to see your own mountain range? Because we constantly, a person, that same person could have told you plenty of times, I know what the mountains look like. You're like, why? Because I've seen a picture. You don't know what something looks like until it's in front of your face. And even then, you're only seeing it from one side. And, you know, I, I, like, I, I go places when I'm supposed to go to them. I've never been a dude who wants to throw a bag on and go here or there or there. But what I do is I've, I've constantly been exploring the inner workings of myself for a very long time. And uh, I continue to do that. And it, and it takes me places. Hip hop takes me places, you know, takes me to juvenile detention centers. It, it takes me to like, it takes me to, in, to an airplane to where I land at some sort of place. And I'd be like, yo, I was landed here. This place looks exactly like where I was, but it's not because it's where I am. And, you know, if you like, this is something that just came to me. It's like, think about this, right? And maybe this will fit into your, your, uh, your writer's block situation because your writer's block is Tetris. So you just got to flip that joint until you find a spot. You know I mean, and don't be afraid to lay a couple of bricks that don't fit. You know what I'm saying? Because we can clear those lines and those lines, when they get cleared, it'll create an opportunity later on when things fall into place. But <laughs> a, a person, right? A person will tell you all day that they ain't gone nowhere, right? But it's like, yo, I could sit in the same place and travel the world. And I know people who've traveled the world and have gone nowhere because it's all about the inside. And if you, if you match that up with the perception of the passage of time, if time is to be a construct in which we're going to utilize in exemplary fashion, time in itself is perpetual movement. So how are you, just like the rotation of the earth in itself, how is it that you are not moving at all times, even when you're sitting still? people are only stuck because they tell themselves they're stuck when you can't my father's in prison man you know what i'm saying 
And he's still going somewhere. He's still going places. And we can get into that. But he's still he's still developing and growing as a man every single day, whether it be through patience or spirituality or the combination of both or just, you know, vulnerability. Like people sit there and they feel stuck. They feel like when they work their job, oh, my God, at my job, I'm stuck at my job at this desk every day. No, you are putting yourself mentally at that desk. Despite where your physical is at, time in itself is moving. And you can either grab on to the, to the sundial or you can let the night fall and then you can grab onto the shooting stars. But you, if you're choosing to just be where they are, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, except that I can show you. Even trees leave, bro. You know what I'm saying? Even they, they branch out, man. You know what I'm saying? Like they, I love trees, man. I, like they're so, they're so incredibly wise. I think the reason why trees can't talk is because they've been around that long. Except that maybe the tree in Mortal Kombat too. That joint and Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yo, you're right about that too. Those guys, man, they were kind of scary. You know what I'm saying? But you mentioned I, I, spirituality I, there. Can we bring that into the conversation as well? Because I'm sensing, I'm sensing you've got this amazing, really methodical mind, very scientific view of the world. But um, what's the relationship w- with spirituality in your life and your interaction with the world? Ah, well, yo, check it out, yo. I got it for you right here. I'm about to put some cheese in this ravioli for you. So. What happened to me, yo, is, um, yo, now I just got another happy birthday message. And the guy says, I'm sorry I fell into the ether. He didn't. He's living. Like, that's what I don't get. It's like, yo, you didn't disappear. I've been busy. You've been busy. Hopefully, you were both growing. But that in itself is just another re- representation of exactly what I'm going to tell you is that I grew up not believing in God. I was not a uh, person who, you know, yeah, Jesus was a person. He's got great marketing. You know, like, I never really believed in any of that. And, um, you know, the Bible is a literal, is, I mean, literal is it parables? Who knows? But what happened to me is uh, my 21st birthday, I, I had a moment of acceptance because previously I'd been getting kind of strange signs, man. I was kind of like, you know, it's kind of buying into some of the darkness and, and I wasn't recognizing that the darkness represents the light. You know, like it, it's, it's a grand balance. I had strange things happening. But then I looked, man, and I, um, I just realized like, yo, this is stupid. We're fighting over all these specifics, right? All these specifics to, to, to try to create some sort of understanding. Yet the only way to communicate that understanding is through language. And the only way, you know, the only thing at best, language is always going to be approximate. Language is never exact. You can say exactly the right thing, but it was still approximate in accordance to what the grander scheme of the meaning is. Because again, no word necessarily, you can say the right words, but the right words are the wrong words in other contexts. The right words are just one version of that same statement because all we're trying to do is create understanding. And so if you look around this world, right now even, this very conversation is based upon several different, incredibly perfect nuance, some manipulations of man, some of the divine, where it's invisible air, can't see it. The waves, the Wi-Fi, can't see it. All these things are invisible. You mean to tell me you don't believe in something that you can't see, yet you breathe air to tell me that? Yes. I was, I was like, that is it. That God is the great omnipotent divinity. It's the grandest of designs. You know what I'm saying? It is the, the biggest picture possible and the fact that we all fit in it. It's more than a kaleidoscope. It's a mosaic. And that's my relationship with God is I believe that the universe 
you know, it, it's, it's everywhere. It's everything. And we are part of it. It's a universal energy. It's your key. I can pull from my roots, from my feet, and I can feel my inner strength flow throughout my body through different chambers to, to, the, to, to the ends of my extremities. I can listen with my eyes. I mix records with my eyes. I don't use my ears. Like I have synesthesia kind of in that sense, man. But like there's, a, there's so many different aspects of our individual experience that we limit simply because of what we're supposed to, we think we're supposed to be seeing, what we think we can describe with the approximate language when it's like, yo, the universe speaks to us constantly 24 hours a day and it doesn't say a word. So how do you think that you using a word is going to ever match that? You know, I look at it, you look at everything in this world, it's based off empty space. When you do a song, you got to find the pocket. When an artist does a painting, he has to have that balance of symmetry. You know, look at, look at architecture, look at geography, look at every single thing in this world. And it's based off the universal, you know, I mean, the universal utilization of empty space. It's off of air. It's off of countless limitless resources that cannot be exhausted except by the time, by, by man, when he begins to quantify them. And so I truly believe that that's, that's the expression of the universe. That's God. It's, it's the part in the particle, man. If you think you're looking, it's, the, it's the, the Bruce Lee joint, man. If you stare at the moon, you're missing out on the heavenly glory. And we get it constantly. We get it all the time, man. And we as people are just choosing to always see the glass is half empty. Oh, it's, it's not enough. It's never enough. What is enough? Like, you know, that, that you, you got 30 guns, but you got two hands. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, it's, it's wild that we want to, like, they say don't count your blessings. I think it means that, I think they say that more so not because, oh, if you count them, it's going to go against you. It's because the moment you count them, you start to quantify them and you start to diminish their true value. Mm-hmm. Everything counts, man. Everything matters. Everything is a part of this bigger picture. And that's, that's my spirituality. I don't enforce any sort of like, you know, orthodox or whatever it is. Like I believe in the powers of Jesus because Jesus was wielding the same powers that Buddha used. You know what I'm saying? Like we're all just part of a universal flow. And the more we tap into that flow, the more we can create beautiful things. Because, you know, God is the ultimate artist. It's the greatest artist ever. Like, you know, Mother Nature in itself is just another, you know, is probably hand in hand. If not the same sort of thing, Mother Nature is, is the closest to, you know, seeing what, what, how great God can paint. And our worst moments are often also some of the most artistic and beautiful things because so much great stuff has come from pain and suffering in this life. I don't agree with the pain and suffering, but I definitely support and endorse the utilization of it in order to help somebody else not have to go through the same thing. And we can do that through our art. We can do that through our stripes and our scars. And that's, that's the gift of desperation that God gives us on our journey if we're willing to accept it, because you can't accept the gift of desperation without desperation. You can't be inspired without first being in the writer's block situation. Like, I don't believe in this side of that side. I believe in like how they say about, um, you know, uh, teleportation or the folding of time and space, the space time continuum. I believe that we are on a spectrum and, and like, you can take it this way and you can end up on this side of it. But if you're simply saying I'm on this side of this side, you're missing the point because you're just on it. That's it. And that's, that's the gift. That's the ultimate thing that we all got is we all on this thing, man. And we can go from here to there, but we're always just going to be where we are. And so the moment you recognize that you find presence, that's where you can be in, in true connection with God. So that's where I try to stay at all times. I love that when you find presence, when you're present, that's been my biggest lesson, I would say, of like 
the past two years of my life, moving constantly, seeing the world, being a performer, being on stage, that crazy life that I lived and the moment it slowed down and I sort of questioned like, who am I, where am I going? The one thing that brought me full circle was being present to a moment and to be in that time and space and not thinking about the future, the past, just staying in the present. That was the most profound lesson I've taken these past few years of, of slowing down. And my relationship with God has changed as well. And I love what you say, because I often think people get so tied up in specifics and semantics about what God is and religion. And that's why there's wars. That's why there's arguments. That's why people can't talk about these things. But when you speak of it the way you did in sort of a, a very broad, it's you spoke very broadly about it, but it's still very specific in certain points, if that makes any sense. And I think that that's the way a lot of people, if they were just to take themselves outside of their indoctrination, would see that there's a commonality between all religions trying to seek truth. Like, what is truth? You know, my father, who's a, a scholar and a, um, a minister and a professor, talks about absolutes, you know, how we sort of lost absolutes in society. But I don't think truth is unbendable. I don't think you can sort of manipulate truth. Truth is what it is, but as humans, we try to manipulate it for our own gain. And if you take away the ego and you take away all that stuff and you just look at the bigger picture, it really is about recognizing the vast beauty of all of it and staying present to it. Because every day, every moment is your lesson. That's God speaks, you know, God speaks to you constantly. And you said through nature, you could stand outside, you hear the birds singing, you watch the, the leaves blowing in the breeze, whatever. That's God speaking to you. It doesn't matter what you do, it's profound and being present to it and aware of it is how you're going to discover your real relationship with God outside of a written indoctrination or an organized thing. And I've liberated myself from that as well. And it's been one of the most beautiful things that I've done in my life is just to let go of the specifics and be more present. Exactly. You ever seen, uh, you ever seen Fearless, the Jet Li movie? The story of you, Hangja? No, I haven't. Yo, you gotta watch it. There's, there's a. Uh, I'm not a big. I used to be in action flicks. I mean, nowadays, man, I'm, I'm not necessarily that that deep into them necessarily because it's just more like bang bang. But I, um, I love Fearless. It was Jet Li's last. Uh, forgot what the name, the term that they used. I think it's like wushu film or something like that. But it's the last film of that type that he made, and it's a story about Yu Hong Ja and um, who was a, apparently a real person. But there's a, a lot of incredible messages in that film. And one of the things that really um, always stuck with me when I watched it was that uh, during the time where he works in the rice fields, they, there's, a, there's a thing about the wind. And the people who are all working, when the wind comes, they stop and they take it in. And it's like, yeah, the work is hard. It's backbreaking. But there was this universal presence, this energy, this, this blessing that they would all stop working for just to become aware of and present for and to absorb. And I always try to look for my moments in my life when I have that. And it comes through the breeze sometimes. And then the other thing, too, is like um, another thing that I really took to heart from that film that I applied to hip hop is that uh, spirited competition. He's a Chinese martial artist who faces off against a Japanese martial artist. And there's a discussion, I won't spoil the outcome, but there's a discussion around this competitive aspect because of the division over who has supremacy, who is superior, you know, the Japanese or the Chinese. And when he meets his opponent who thinks, oh, this guy, is gonna, he's, gonna, he's trying to be a nationalist. He's trying to show me this Chinese artist superior to my Japanese art. 
he he finds out that all all Huang Zhao wants is to have spirited competition for us to face each other so that we can face ourselves. And at that moment, we recognize that we are our only opponent. It requires us to have that conflict, but that conflict generates a true void of self-discovery. So while we may be punching each other, hitting each other, we are actually fighting ourselves. And that's who the true victor will be. And that is um, something that I took when people in hip hop, man, you know, there's, there's, there's more dip, you know what I'm saying, than you would think than chips. But a lot of people still got their chips on their shoulder and they try to step with you, man. And I'm like, bro, like, number one, I got an ocean of sauce for you over here, right? But we ain't even got to get to that, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm not going to knock that chip off your shoulder. I'm going to let you know you don't need that, bro. We can just break bread in this situation because all I want you to do is to explore the universe within yourself further to establish and reestablish and, and connect greater that connection that you can have with all this around us. Cause I'm drawn from the same source as you, the same thing. And when it comes to that absolutions and, and truths and the inflexibilities, it's just very fascinating to me how we can arrive at similar truths through random assemblances of facts. You don't have to have the same facts to have the equivalent truth. But once you do have the equivalent truth, you can have equality through understanding. And then from there, you can build together and actually create new situations. Like that's what teamwork is. You know, the quarterback, I don't know much about sports, but like the wide receiver and the quarterback are both just as important to each other because the only thing they serve is the ball. They both work for the ball. The ball starts here and the guy has to know where it's going. The quarterback has to know how to throw it. The world, the universe has to be in accordance with it on some Sun Tzu. You need heaven and earth. And like, it's got to go across and it's got to get caught in this person's spot. And then when they get tackled, they have to say, that was progress. It was not a failure because we didn't score a touchdown. It is progress. We moved forward. That's all we are trying to do. That's what each play is. You make enough successful plays, you're going to get a touchdown. Will it be enough? Who knows? But that's people always just think, oh, points, points, points. The point is just to make progress. Progress is prosperity. It's not, a, it's not the scoreboard. You know, I, I guarantee you at the end of the game, when they sit down, whether they win or lose, they go over the same stuff. Where did we fail? How can we get better? It's reflection. That's it. You know, like when I, when I make a record, man, I look at that joint and I mean, like right now to give you some background, like literally yesterday was the day, man, the final mix of my next strange famous album has arrived. And this has been a, a horrendous process because I got a lot going on and um, these songs, man, it's, it's uh, it, it, it was a, I didn't know what I was writing necessarily. Like Mopes, because he produced this whole one as well. Mopes was like, oh, oh man, like halfway through, he was like, all right, man, we got we to gotta stop. Uh, no, we got to stop writing these emotional songs. And I was thinking, I didn't know I was writing about anything emotional. You know what I'm saying? Like, I thought I was just telling my stories. And, um, you know, you end up being like, all right, I don't want to steer towards certain topics. I want to stay authentic. I just want to stay. I just want to keep spilling. You know what I mean? I just want to spill on these joints. So I, I spilled on the joints, man. I spilled the kill. And boom laid it out and then what happens is you get your body of work back and you go from being in a place of yeah that's perfect i laid that down there i laid that to it's all about pointing out what's wrong with it mm -hmm. and 
it is the most annoying thing because when you don't engineer like me, like, cause I'm, I'm, I drive myself crazy. What happens is you got to figure out how to tell somebody what's wrong because they're the only ones who can fix it. And then how your perception might be what's wrong. And it might on a frequency level be mathematically correct. And so you have to go through this strange process of abstraction where it's like, I'm trying to take what my eyes are telling me, which would be your ears would be telling you that what your ears told you is not right because my vocals are not in this place. They should be in that place. And instead you've got them in this place, but then the overall dynamic of the record and the volume is, is correct. So we have to work on trying to figure out how to slide these things around. It's a, it's a messy, horrible thing that um, requires acceptance over settlement. And also is um, it, you gotta be humble when you're at the mercy of another man's process, especially, and you have to be trusting. You know, and Zola, DJ Zola did a mix on this one. Alexander Brown did the last one. So it's like, uh, and, and, and they did most of the majority of the work on it without me. So like, because I mean, Mo's got the ear. So it was like, yo, when it, when, I, when it came to me, I felt bad pointing out stuff. And I was like, yo, this is like my thing. Why do I feel bad about this? <laughs> you know, it was mad weird. But um, it, it, they thankfully, you know, we all worked together uh, of one accord and one goal, and we were able to find the, the 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 spots, and we were able to get it right. But it required me to get out of my own way to accept imperfections and to build at them, and to recognize that we're not looking for the perfect; we're looking for the moment, and we're looking for a way to convey this as best that we can. And everything is a representation of I can get better at this. We can get better at this. We're failing to succeed. In the corporate world, they say we're failing forward. Yeah, that's, that's always a fun one. But what we're doing is um, we, we really, really, really through this grading process of just trying to say, all right, well, what are we expressing here? What is the, the most exact approximation we can arrive at where we're all in agreement and where this feels like success? And we, and we landed there yesterday, man. We finally, it's, I'm convinced now. And um, it just sucks. You got to convince yourself about yourself. Who does that? <laughs> that's an artist right there in a nutshell. You just described the life of an artist. And that's, yeah. that's really well. I mean, that's how I am with records, too. I totally agree with that. And c- congratulations, too, by the way. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I- I'm really excited because, like, I- to know that, like, like people like you are listening or just to know period that a person such as yourself is listening to what I'm talking about. All the things that you said you liked about uh, the other. I, um, I really, I really went there and it's just been strange. I didn't, I didn't have any, um, any plan for it. Like, and it's rare that you do a record and every record makes the cut. And we even did it and cut. And then we were like, Nope, they're going back on. And then we're going to do a few more. And it ended up being like, it's longer than the last one, but not like anything crazy. But it, um, I feel like uh, I'm really proud of the lyrics. And I'm, I'm really proud of the lyrics because it's, uh, it's vulnerable and it's honest. And it's like this conversation. It's making me have a whole bunch of memories that like I didn't know existed, man. I'll uh, just, to, just to sidetrack it for a second here too. One thing that I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, feel compelled to mention here is an experience that I had um, recently. My mother 
she goes through a lot of health issues or she's been going through a lot of different health issues. She's been in and out of like, you know, like SNF type scenarios and whatnot. Like right now her home health is leaving. She stays at my crib. I don't have kids. I have a mom and I have cats that she has. So, you know, she's been in and out this thing. And um, the last time she was in an SNF, it, it came time for her to come home and they moved her release date up by a week. And so uh, the pressure was on to like, I want to clean her whole area. I want to make it fresh. I want to, you know, rearrange things. I want her to feel like she's coming home, yo. And uh, my mom is like, she's she, she could she could be a hoarder if she let her get there, man. And uh, I ended up going through a bunch of stuff, and I found like a thousand pictures, like literally, like a thousand pictures. And uh, I found out my mom had a whole other life. And then on top of that, I found out like that there were just pieces of my life that I have I don't remember that like were just gone from my childhood, like moments and, and things. Like it was like looking at another person's existence, and um. It really messed me up. And I was like, wow, like I have to find a way to be happy about this. And those pieces of myself, I found them at least. And I was like, what do I do with them? And so I think a lot of that showed up in the writing. But the um, the thing that, uh, that I really want to just touch on is the fact that when my mom came home, right? And this is this is the this was my big lesson. I was like, she's going to be so hyped because, yo, the room is, I triple vacuumed that joint. I got new furniture. You know, we got the TV in the spot. Like, you got the utilization of space. We got a limited storage so that you cannot keep the excess. Like, I sorted through all your stuff. You had a bunch of stuff that was trash that I threw out, right? When she came home, she was not happy at all. And it was like, yo, you know, like we build ourselves up thinking we're doing the right thing only to find out that us doing the right thing, our truth led to the, the fact that we totally hurt another person. And, I, and it hurt my mom, Joe. You know what I'm saying? She's like, I can't believe you threw. I was like, yo, you're never going to use that dollar lipstick that you had in there, bro. It's not going to happen. You ain't even going nowhere. Just be home. Be thankful. And it was a big battle, man. And uh, at the same time, I had to deal with the fact that, like that, I just found a thousand pieces of myself that I that I still don't know what to deal with. And so, like, I mean, life life does these things to us, man. You know, and it puts this on us so that we can decide what to do with it. And instead, we often do something to ourselves. And I think this art and, and like conversations like these, these experiences that we're fortunate to have. Your life is a performer, and then being forced to live with yourself on ice for like two years instead of being who everybody has told you you are because that's who you were when you did whatever you did to get to where you were so that you can say here i am and they can be like there you are and now you're like yo where am i and then you're like oh yo like who am i you know what i'm saying because everybody's gone i'm the only one still here you know and and i tell artists all the time when you get on stage you got to be able to give the, the show that you give a thousand people to one person and sometimes it might only be one person. You got to make that thousand people feel like one person, though, and not one person feel like a thousand people. And that's that's the true thing. And it's when we get over ourselves, man, we, we, we take what life is doing to us and we do something entirely different to ourselves. And I'm, I'm just hoping that like discussions like these and, and, and the music that I'm making right now and, and the stories that I'm telling through social media and everything help people get further in touch with their with with their identity 
and, and recognize that your power is not your strength. Your power is something that you can use to capitalize, to get what you want, but your vulnerability is going to help you get what you need. And, and, you know, if we need each other, we desperately need ourselves. Wow. What an education and what a perfect way to kickstart series two. And it, we kind of fluke this. I think, I feel like it couldn't have been any more perfect. Everything you've touched on is everything that we try and explore as best we can uh, with each person we have on. And you've kind of nailed like every topic on your own. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I concur. I, you know, there are moments where I wanted to interject, but I'm glad I didn't because you got it. You just brought us on this journey and I'm sure any listener there, this is going to be a re-listen. I don't think they're going to pick up and I'm going to have to re-listen to it. Everything that you've said um, in one listen, like in one setting, there's a lot of wisdom you've you've shown. And it's great, too, because we always try to, you know, bring the artist outside of what they're used to talking about. You know, most people come on, they think, oh, I'm going to talk about my new record. I'm going to talk about my career. And we really like to have that sort of be the the background of what this show is about. And the foreground is about everything you, you touched upon and just went through. And, you know, people can go check out your art, you know, your art, your music, your, your hardcore band on their own. That's not what this show is about. The show is about the essence of why you do what you do, why you're here on this earth and your purpose. And yeah, it couldn't have been better. I feel like you just brought us along for a nice little ride. That was, it was incredible. And I really think the moment you stopped speaking right there, I know Matt felt it too. It's like mic drop. That's it. That, that's <laughs> I mean, there's been a few, there's been a few mic drops, but <laughs> that felt like the full episode, you know, let's wrap yeah. a ribbon around it and, and just, place that present right there dude what uh what a treat getting to know you and getting an insight into you know your really unique mind and and you're heading out on tour with crowbar i believe is is that right as well soon so yeah, you, yeah, you, you've got your record and then you've got a band as well and so as well as just dropping all that wisdom you're just going to be g going out and, and crushing it with the nola kings of of sludge <laughs> well yeah, yeah and that's that's a weird thing. i'm not riding the road with them though i'm just doing um we got a gig with them right and um you know what? You want a full circle moment? Here's one for you, all right? That show, right? The NOLA Connection. We were supposed to open up for I Hate God. And they had like a Rona situation. Show got canceled. The, uh, then out of nowhere, there was like, well, hey, you know, it's crowbar things coming together. What do you think about that? The band is down with it, right? And uh, they, they said the same thing. Those are sludge. Yeah, dude, let's do it, right? So I was like, word. And then um, the show, what date does the show land on? On my birthday. And here we are talking about my fake book for birthday. <laughs> and the crowbar show is on my real birthday, which wow. I never celebrate because I think we're born every day. We're born every moment. So mm -hmm. it's like, why wait? Why do I got to wait a whole year to celebrate any of this, man? Like, this is awesome. Every single thing, my worst moments, I watched my father get sentenced to life in prison. You know what I'm saying? The same way that they used to give me 44 cents back or whatever it was, or 11 cents back when I used to go to the grocery store and buy 40 ounces, bro. You know, this life is wild. This life is wicked. And like, you can sit here and you can be like, oh my God, your father's in prison. Or you can be like, yo, you had a father. You had, a, you had somebody there, regardless of whatever it was, up to that moment, and he's still there in just a new way. And you had a challenge that was placed in front of you. And I'll tell you this, my father, right, 
My father was um was was an atheist. He found God in prison, which some people say is, is typical, but it's not. It's personal. It's spiritual. And people say, do you wish that whatever it is, my father's maintained his innocence. And I'm going to tell you right now, prison is full of innocent people. But the thing is, is that I don't believe that at, at all in life that we should ever wish that whatever happened did not happen. Because for me to ever say that I wish my father was not incarcerated be, would be for me to wish away his relationship with a higher power. And I, who am I? I don't think so. You know, so like, I just think that, uh, you know, the, the path of acceptance that we all travel is was going to keep on giving us this gift. And the, the band has just been the latest expression of it, of it for me. But um, I think that this, this in itself is just as important as a record. But this doesn't work just like the band doesn't work without authenticity. So I really appreciate the fact that you guys have decided being you could easily be like, hey, I'm in, I'm, I'm band guy, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to create this. Tell us about your song. Tell us about your project. Instead, yeah, it's there. We all know it's there. But who, who are we? Who are we here right now? And what are we trying to learn about ourselves? And, and where are we? And, and I think that um, it's incredible. And, and I'm just really appreciative of the fact that you guys are creating this platform and created this platform and are taking it there. And I hope that with this being the start of the season that, you know, it only leads to even greater things and that we do connect in person and, and you know, we, we fist bumps, elbow dap, whatever the hell it is we end up doing. Like, uh, I just hope that we get to do it and that there's coffee. Yeah, I'm down. I love it. And uh, saying this uh, very real, like I'm a fan of what you do, man. Honestly, I Thank think you. Uh, you really have something genuine to contribute to the collective. And I think anyone who's a fan of music, period, would enjoy either project that you're doing, your hip hop or your, your hardcore. And I love the message you're spreading. It's an honor to have you on, brother. And it's definitely no, an honor to meet you. you on Zoom and we will cross paths, I'm sure. Yo, we, I, I'm certainly, man. Listen there, yo. You, you get enough capitalized, you know what I'm saying? some underscores eventually you get the tea yo, and that's where we will be at even though we're gonna have coffee we'll still have the tea we will our, our paths will intersect even my homie over there across the pond bro you know what i'm saying there's no 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 expanse big enough you know what i mean everything could be crossed and it all starts with past man this is just a, another example of how you we can utilize distance to become closer so i just hope that uh that whoever does catch this catches it and that it's worth the second listen, if that's what it takes. And, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things, man. I'm really just really thankful. And, you know, the, the, the world, man, the world is big, you know, but it's only big because we see ourselves as small. I think we are, we all, they're all just the same size, man. And that's why we can all get together in this world and we can all work together. Like we, uh, we all fit the same big picture, man. And the moment we recognize each other as peers and equals is the moment we can see how many great things that we're capable of doing. So just thank you all the way and just much success. And, and thank you for taking the time, man. We had a, this Captain Planet style, you know, we had to combine powers, you know. And I, I, I didn't bring a monkey. I had cats, but I didn't have a monkey like my tea. I'm sorry. That's not funny. Well, pleasure, my man. Definite pleasure. Truly, truly, yo, truly. Love and respect, Black Lick. Thank you so much, man. That was just the most perfect way to start this whole second season off. I couldn't have hoped for a for a better chat, and I feel like a better, more informed person because of of hanging out with you today. So thank you, dude. Nah, thank you, yo. Straight up, yo. Thank you. 
All right, my friends. See you on the flip. We're back. We're back, baby. Love it. Yes. Peace. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.